Amen. Thank you, Pastor Randy. Uh, parents, glad that you're with us. And as always, there's a cry room in the north end of the preschool building, which is just the building right next to us. Uh, just remember to take your kids with you if you go over there to cry. And uh, Pastor Chuck is away. He's been away this week on vacation. So my name is Tad Skinner. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to be with you this morning. And there's so many new people in this room just over the past few months. Really grateful for all of you that have chosen to find a new church or to attend a new church during this season. Uh, looking forward to seeing the bottom half of your faces someday and getting to know you truly. So as I've studied this passage uh, that we're going to be in this morning, I've been reminded of our essential workers. Um, many of those, uh, many of you in this room are, are essential workers. Those who are doctors or nurses or restaurant workers or teachers uh, really come to understand our church staff as essential workers as well. Uh, those who have been sorely needed to continue to serve our community in these challenging, these anxious times. And I've been reminded and prayed for you because I believe that the main idea uh, or the central message of the passage that we'll be in today is that we must use God-given wisdom and prioritize the gospel in obeying God's will, even if God's will involves the, the reality or the possibility of suffering. And for our essential workers, that means grappling with the understanding that serving the community with the gifts and talents and abilities, the very life that God has given you, may mean suffering of some kind. And so the circumstances that we're going to see today were, were definitely different. The stakes were a bit higher for Paul, the Apostle Paul. But this passage made me think of and pray for, for you. So thank you for continuing to serve during this time. Uh, we've been steadily working our way through the book of Acts these past several months. And uh, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's the blue Bibles at the back on that table. Go grab one if you would. And we're on page 542 of, of those Bibles. And here in Acts 21, we find ourselves nearing the end of Paul's third and final missionary journey. And Paul finds himself recognizing the call on his life to now return to Jerusalem to face the music. He's been told by the Holy Spirit that he's to return to Jerusalem, that uh, what awaits him there is persecution, suffering, quite possibly death. And in his obedience to Christ and taking the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, Paul had certainly faced persecution before. We've seen that already in the book of Acts. It's only by the grace of God that his life had been spared uh, up to this point as he repeatedly, as he lovingly proclaimed the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the only way that we can find salvation. No other name, as Randy prayed, uh, in heaven by which we must be saved. But now he's heading to Jerusalem. And actually, he's almost sprinting to Jerusalem. He's not messing around as he, as he makes a beeline towards Jerusalem after he's had that call from the Holy Spirit to return. And in these 16 short verses that we're going to read today, we'll see the varying reactions and responses of, of both old friends and new friends to Paul's certainty and his trust that God has called him to return to Jerusalem to face suffering and likely death. So there's four different settings or four different locations in these 16 verses and different responses regarding Paul's plan to return to Jerusalem. So one really amazing thing that I want you to see here as we walk through this 
Uh, remember our very first introduction to Paul in Acts. If you remember back just a month or two into the pandemic, we were in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8. We were introduced to Saul, uh, Paul's former name. He was known then as Saul. And if you remember, he was a persecutor of the church and uh, had a, a huge impact on killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, uh, opposed to the gospel. And the first mention of Paul, uh, again, known as Saul, was in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. And it reads, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So I want you to look now for the contrast that's highlighted over and over again in these, in these uh, next verses. Where Paul once was unwelcome as he forcibly entered house after house to persecute Christians. Now here on his last missionary journey, we see him being welcomed to enter house after house, to have fellowship with fellow Christians. So the difference here is, is really stunning when we think about this. And that's because God is in the business of transforming guilty sinners like Paul into humble, loving, transformed, redeemed children of God. And if you're not a believer in Christ, then you can have that same transformation. You can have what Paul is experiencing here over and over again. That's the warm, open hand of fellowship from Christian brothers and sisters who are all loved and called by God. So I hope that you'll be reminded as we go through this of, of not just who Paul is now and what he's experiencing now, but who Paul used to be just a, a few short years before this. So we're going to see how this fellowship plays out as we take these four settings one by one. Paul in Tyre, Paul in Ptolemais, Paul in Caesarea, and then Paul journeying to Jerusalem. And one of the truths of our passage today is the, the amazing bonds of unity that we have through Christian fellowship. And so it's, it's really fitting that Kyle Nielsen is going to come and read for us. Uh, Kyle is a junior at ASU, and he helped me move yesterday, expressed uh, that uh, friendship and Christian love in doing that. So one of the big, hoss, you know, studly men that helped me move. So Kyle, please read for us. Uh, so Acts 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Thanks, brother. All right, so Paul has, as we just talked about last week in Acts 20, Paul's just been in Miletus, where he met with the Ephesian elders. And you'll remember that, that tearful goodbye that uh, Paul had with the Ephesian elders on the beach there. And of course, there are no Ubers at this time. There's no airplanes. So uh, he and his Paul and his gospel companions are hitching rides on cargo ships uh, as he makes his way back to Jerusalem. So he hitches a ride uh, that had a, on these cargo ships that had a normal route for trade. They catch a ship from Miletus to Patera. And from there, they board another ship that eventually makes a stop in Tyre. 
And now in all of his missionary journey, Paul had never been to Tyre, at least that we, that we know of. And he decides to stay there for seven days, probably just uh, waiting for his ship that he was on to be re- reloaded with cargo before it goes further south or maybe to catch another ship that was going further south. And while he's there, he starts looking for churches. And just as an aside, uh, maybe this would be helpful to you. We have a, a transitory church in some sense. We have a lot of college students that are here just for three or four years, hopefully not longer than four years. And uh, many people who are here just for a short time before they, they get a job and it leads them out to the suburbs or to some other city. And let me just encourage you with this. We, we just moved our son to uh, Texas to go to Baylor University. And one of the first things that we did before he accepted his scholarship offer was to look, get online and look for gospel-believing, uh, Bible, uh, Bible-believing churches to make sure that there was a church there, a couple of churches there, that he, he'd have the option uh, that he could go to when he attended. So I hope that when you're considering graduate school, if you're a college student or you're considering college or you're considering a move to a new city, you'll do the same thing. Our staff and elders would love to help you with that to make sure there's a, a good church in the area that you're considering moving to. So Paul couldn't do that, of course. He couldn't, couldn't, get, couldn't get online and look for uh, what churches were in Tyre. But somehow they found the local church. So that seems easy to us. There's uh, lots of churches in our area, but, but think about this. Less, less than 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and gospel churches are seemingly everywhere. So don't let this irony be lost. These churches were established by Greek-speaking believers who had scattered to the four winds from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution that Paul had, uh, had done to the, the people in Jerusalem. So Paul is experiencing the fruit, not of his good deeds, but he's experiencing the fruit of his persecution of the early church. God is always at work, and in his kindness, he has used Paul's persecution to grow the church, and now Paul is experiencing the benefits of that uh, persecution. So what he intended for evil, God has used for good. And what we initially might think is not best often turns in the end to be used by uh, God for his glory and actually for our good as well, because God is good. So about these six verses here, some interesting questions for us, some amazing truths. First thing that I want us to notice is that Paul had very likely just met these believers. And yet they felt the freedom and the unity that they have in Christ to challenge Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem. And even more than that, Paul let them challenge him. So what does this tell us about Christian fellowship? I think at least a couple of things. The first thing is that we need each other. Though Paul was a great evangelist, he was constantly engaging with non-believers. He was, everywhere he went, he was surrounded by Christians, Christian brothers and sisters. He was led by Jesus to believers shortly after his conversion to Christ. He was discipled by believers. He sought believers for counsel. He worked alongside fellow believers. He stayed in fellow believers' homes. Paul's constant contact with believers wasn't a sign of weakness. It was a sign of strength. 
And we're all made in the image of God. We were created for community. We were created for community with God. We were created for community with uh, others, especially fellow believers in Christ. And the great Apostle Paul was not a loner. He was humble enough to know that he was at his best when he was engaged with other believers. So there's a lesson there for us, I believe. And the second thing that I think this tells us is about uh, uh, Christian fellowship regarding unity. So the fact that Paul is staying with people he didn't know and that they're challenging him says something about the unity that we have, that we all have in Christ. So we say this often, but as a believer in Christ, we have more in common with the believers in Kenya, more in common with the believers in Thailand, more in common with the believers in Poland than we do with our neighbors, our, our co-workers, uh, our family, who are not believers. And because of that unity that we have in Christ, we can freely and lovingly speak into each other's lives. So please don't be bashful about doing that. Uh, let's continue to grow in lovingly sharing of ourselves, sharing wisdom uh, with fellow believers who are going astray, or uh, when we know a fellow believer needs encouragement, when we understand that a fellow believer uh, could use godly wisdom for everyday life decisions. And further, let's work, all work, to be more humble when someone gifts us with admonition or encouragement or support. So wouldn't your life be so much better, so much more enriched if we learned from Paul and were to give and accept that kind of fellowship with and from other believers? So when we love each other enough to speak into how we parent our children or how we speak of our professors or how we spend our time or how we spend our money, when we care enough to do that, our church is built up, our God is glorified, and our lives are better. So th this passage does bring up one interesting question that we need to at least uh, spend a moment on. Verse 4 indicates that the believers in Tyre were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem and that they were doing so, quote, through the Spirit. Now, this is confusing. If, if you hadn't already seen that, it's confusing because... We know that Paul had been specifically told by the Spirit while in Miletus, back in the last chapter, Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, that he was to go to Jerusalem. So what, what gives there? Well, we know for certain, one thing that we, we can be absolutely certain on, the Bible talks about, is that God is not a God of contradiction. So it can't be that the Holy Spirit told Paul one thing, and then the Holy Spirit told these believers entire something opposite or contrary to that. That can't be the case. So what's most likely is that the Holy Spirit revealed to the believers entire something about the suffering that was awaiting Paul in Jerusalem. And they translated that uh, information about the sufferings that were awaiting him into warnings to Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So inadvertently, their well-intentioned warnings were going against the will of the Spirit who was leading Paul to Jerusalem. So we'll talk more about how Paul discerned the will of God in staying the course despite those warnings by those entire to not return. But for now, just remember that those entire were imploring Paul not to return. 
And then we see at the very end this, this very sweet scene on the beach that's reminiscent of what we just saw in the previous chapter in Miletus with the Ephesian elders. Such amazing fellowship. Keep in mind, this is only seven days that he was there. So such amazing fellowship and strong bonds after being with these believers for only a short amount of time. We have no ability to create those bonds, those strong bonds in and of ourselves. Only God can do that. Our job is just to recognize those, to sustain those, to nurture them as we have the opportunity. So Paul and his traveling companions, they load up and they move on. And in Acts 21.7, we see Paul traveling the 25 miles by boat to Ptolemais. And we read, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So not much here uh, in this uh, stay in Ptolemais other than to see that Paul stops at another town with believers, another town that he had never been to, another church that welcomes him and shows great hospitality to this fellow believer. So the amount of time that Paul was there, whether it's seven days or three years or one day, made no difference in how he was treated and how he was welcomed and how he was loved. So after that very brief stay, we read further, in verse, starting in verse 8. It says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So after this 25-mile trip to Caesarea, another 25-mile trip, Paul walks ashore. And I think it's actually really cool to see the same names keep popping up in Acts as we go through. Uh, we see Philip. You remember him? It references him as one of the original uh, servants in the uh, church in Jerusalem. Um, he's uh, the one who also helped the Ethiopian eunuch understand that all of scripture the old testament pointed forward to jesus he proclaimed the name of jesus and baptized that ethiopian official in acts chapter 8 it's the same philip and the last we heard was actually from him or about him was in acts chapter 8 verse 40 it just says that he was in caesarea so evidently he stayed there and he got busy raising a family so think for a moment about people like philip these are dispersed Christians forced to scatter from the only home that they've known on the threat of imprisonment and likely death, leaving family and friends and jobs their entire life. So put yourself in Philip's sandals for a moment and think about what his life would have been like. Very likely he had either experienced persecution at the hands of Paul or certainly he knew people who had experienced persecution at the hands of Paul forced to leave Jerusalem and all he had known. And yet, what does he do? 
he extends the hand of fellowship to Paul. Christian love and friendship can't be manufactured. As we said earlier, it's empowered, it's strengthened, it's sustained by God through the Holy Spirit. So think about that in relationship to your own life for just, just one moment. Do you believe that God asked too much of Philip to forgive Paul and extend that hand of fellowship to him? That was asking a lot. Surely you have fellow believers that you've gotten crossways with in the past. I would encourage you to think about what Philip did and think about those people that you've gotten crossways with and and perhaps you should forgive them. Perhaps you should go to them and try to restore that relationship that you once had. So after being refreshed by Philip and his family for a few days, Agabus shows up. Another name, you remember Agabus, another name that we've heard of in the book of Acts. We, we heard about him when he was in Antioch in Acts chapter 11. And he's the one who back in Acts 11 prophesied about the regional famine that would occur that would uh, affect Jerusalem and led to the church at Antioch sending monetary aid, financial aid to the church at Jerusalem by the hands and feet of Paul and Barnabas. So we have a, a really strange, well, I think it's a strange sight. Agabus asks for Paul's belt, and then he ties his own hands and feet with that. Yeah, I think the term is he hogtied himself. So once you get past the strangeness of this, I, I have to admit this is pretty impressive. I, I was talking to my wife about this, and she was not nearly as impressed as I was. Um, that's perhaps because I'm the least flexible person in this room. Um, I think even if you put me in a room full of octogenarians, I would still be the least uh, flexible person in this room. But even the most flexible of us would struggle with this feat. And I don't want to hear it if you disagree with that, so let let me keep that fantasy, okay? But even if you did it, what a strange thing to see. This would be a strange thing to see, somebody grabbing your belt and tying their hands and feet. So Agabus is saying that if Paul travels to Jerusalem, the Jews are going to bind him just as Agabus was bound. And then the Jews will turn Paul over to the Roman authorities who will imprison him. So, spoiler alert, uh, that is exactly what happens. Uh, Later, we'll see that in the coming chapters. So, he was not only blessed with dexterity, but he was an accurate prophet as well. So, the prophecy was persuasive, and Philip and his people implored Paul to forego his travel plans. But Paul persisted. And you can almost hear the urgency and resolve in his voice in verse 13. He says, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul was emotionally affected by the pleas of the Caesarean believers. But though he was emotionally moved, he would not be moved away from doing the will of the Lord. Paul is ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's ready to go the distance for the resurrected Lord who revealed himself to Paul back in Acts chapter 9. Paul's ready to give everything for the Savior who who commissioned him in Acts 9 to preach to Gentiles and kings and Jews. Paul's ready to fulfill the words from Acts uh, 9.16 at the very beginning of Paul's ministry when, when Jesus said that I will make you suffer 
for the sake of my name. So it's not that Paul wasn't affected by the concern of others. Rather, his far greater concern was to fulfill the will of the Lord. So how, how different is Paul's response than how I experience suffering or how you experience suffering? Paul's utmost concern wasn't safety or comfort or a long life, but those are the very things that I'm thinking of when I'm suffering, especially when I'm in the middle of a trial. I'm thinking about those things for myself. So let's finish this section for today, these last two verses, and then we'll, we'll return to this issue of suffering in just a moment. So in verse 15, we pick up, and it says, After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So short passage that bridges the 65-mile journey uh, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. That would have taken Paul and his companions probably four, maybe five days by foot. So note that the believers in Caesarea, they initially opposed Paul traveling to Jerusalem, yet they consented to the Lord's will for Paul. And so after talking the talk in verse uh, 14, they said, let the will of the Lord be done, and saying, you go ahead and go to Jerusalem. So they talked the talk, but then they walked the walk. They, they actually went with him, sent some people with him to Jerusalem. And that, that's a humble act of submission to the Lord. They, they were treated to this one-act play by Agabus. They, they knew what awaited Paul. They had surely heard of all the, you know, all the good things that Paul had done in sharing Christ uh, to the, the, the churches and, and lifting them up and encouraging them and teaching them, bringing them aid. Though they didn't know Paul, they knew of him, and they loved him and wanted no harm to come to him. And yet they let him go, and then they encouraged him with their continued support all the way to Jerusalem. So what love these people in Caesarea expressed to Paul. So now Paul's in Jerusalem. We'll pick up there in verse 17 next week. But this passage leaves us with at least one important truth and three weighty, uh, real-life, theological, everybody-faces-them kinds of questions that I think we need to address. The, the important truth first. So again, this is a key passage that exemplifies the virtue of true friendship. It's a key passage that serves as an example of Christian love for our brothers and sisters. So Paul went everywhere with Christian friends. He wasn't a loner. So whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, we were designed by God, as I, as I mentioned, both for communion with him and communion with others. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, of course. Uh, that's uh, resulted in a lot of changes. One of those changes is in the way that we relate to each other, the way we we are able to gather together. And for some, I know, you, you may have found yourself slipping into uh, some, some patterns where you, you isolate yourselves. And now that things are beginning to open back up a little bit, you're, you're fighting that tendency to stay at home and to continue to do those same isolating kinds of things. And I would just say, friends, if that's you, we need you. And you need us. So if your physical health or your life circumstance doesn't keep you from being six feet away from others, then it's imperative to your spiritual health to enjoy fellowship here with us. 
Hebrews chapter 10 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I need the admonition. I need the encouragement. I need the support of fellow believers, of fellow friends with whom I have unity in Christ. And you need that too. And if your health or circumstance is uh, preventing you right now from going into work or to the grocery store or to other public places, then uh, please know that you're providentially hindered from being around others, and God certainly knows that. Uh, we know that as well. We, we have many of our GCs and our staff and our elders that are reaching out to, to those that are, that are particularly vulnerable and aren't able to be here. We're longing for the day when you can return and be with us. We can all celebrate together. What a joyful day that that will be. So the one truth that this passage shows us by the example of the early church is how incredible the bonds of Christian friendship and unity really are. Now the first question that this passage raises is how do we know God's will? Now surely you can relate to that question. You have sought God's will. You've tried to understand what God's will is before. And surely you can relate to Paul's dilemma as Paul was getting mixed messages about God's will here. Sometimes understanding God's will isn't easy, and the, the waters were certainly muddied for Paul as he experienced different messages from people in Tyre and, and in Caesarea. So let's revisit those responses just really briefly just to make sure we're all on the same page. Paul experienced or expressed a clear word from the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 20 that he was to return to Jerusalem. He was supposed to go. In fact, the, the word that, that that passage uses is constrained. The Holy Spirit had constrained him to go to, to Jerusalem. So he was to return. And that caused great grief among the Ephesian elders. I remember that Luke, the human writer of Acts, was with Paul. He was with Paul in Miletus and all through this missionary journey. So they grieved that they likely would not see him again. But they didn't oppose his expression of trust that the Holy Spirit was sending him to Jerusalem. Entire, a very different response. Paul faced opposition from these Christian brothers and sisters. They implored him not to go to Jerusalem. In Caesarea, another different response. Everyone was, was greatly persuaded by that prophetic act of Agabus. It says in verse 12, see that word we? Uh, look at that word we in verse 12. Even Dr. Luke flip-flopped and was telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But eventually they all relented as they understood that it was the will of the Lord that he would return to Jerusalem. So can you imagine how confusing and how difficult this must have been for Paul? But through all of these cities, all of these meetings with people who loved him, wanted only the best for him, Paul did not waver. Three times he said, I must go to Jerusalem. It's reminiscent of, of Jesus when Jesus was facing opposition to return to Jerusalem. He said three times, I must go to Jerusalem. So how did Paul resist the well-intentioned words of these Christian brothers and sisters and stay true to the Holy Spirit? Well, in short, Paul prioritized the gospel over all else. He trusted that he had truly heard from God. He knew God's word. 
He chose to be a God pleaser rather than a people pleaser. And that's so hard, but he chose to prioritize the gospel, chose to prioritize following Jesus rather than following even well-intentioned man. So let's not get this mistaken. Paul listened to fellow believers. He, God often does speak through his church, and that's a valuable and undeniable source of wisdom. But God is not a God of contradiction. And when the church gives wisdom, if it truly is wisdom, then it matches up with the word of God. Paul didn't stonewall the church. He didn't ignore their input. He didn't dismiss them. He showed that he valued them by listening, but he valued God's input more. He had a clear understanding of God's direction and will, and so he he didn't elevate people to be above God. So we know God's will ultimately by knowing God's character, by spending time with him, by talking to him, by listening to him. And though God's will is often confirmed through the means of the church, we must always use God-given wisdom, must always prioritize the gospel when we're seeking God's will. The second question this passage forces us to, to grapple with is where do we find the ability to obey God's will when we know that his will leads to the reality of suffering? So Paul knew that he was going to suffer if he obeyed God's will. So how did he do that? How did he find the ability to do that? Well, remember Paul's reaction in verse 13. said that he was ready to follow God to the end. Uh, One of the things that I find humorous about this, have you ever, how many of you have a life verse? Bible life verse, anybody have those? Ever heard of those things? Something that you live by and you hold on to? Can you imagine writing your own life verse? Uh, Very few people have done that. Paul is one of them who has written his own life verse. If he If he had such a thing as a life verse, I think it would have been what he said in Acts 20, 24, when he said, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he knew that he wasn't really living his life, wasn't really living life unless he was obeying God. Paul knew that there were worse things than dying. The worst thing than dying to Paul and to us was not obeying God's will. He wasn't going to live a life that was displeasing to God. So friends, do you seek God's will with fervor? And when you find it, are you unshakable in your pursuit of God's will? No matter what the cost is, whether that means that you lose relationships or you lose your status or you lose your health, or in Paul's case, you lose your very life. This was Paul's reality. And the only way to obey God's will in the face of suffering is to know that Jesus is better than anything else that we'll ever know or do or have. We have many great examples, but one that I chose is from Sarah Edwards. When her husband, the the great pastor, American pastor, Jonathan Edwards, who most of you, many of you read at least uh, one of his sermons in high school, at least I did, uh, when her husband died, she wrote this to her daughter, Esther. She said, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud, Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. 
uh, just to translate that, because the rod meaning that we may welcome and embrace and understand that good and bad uh, God allows into our lives, that we may cover our mouths, that we may not complain uh, when those sufferings come. And she goes on, the Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness. And then she goes on to describe to her daughter the great grief, the great love that she had for her husband and uh, Esther's father and the, the great loss that she had suffered. And she ends with, but my God lives and he has my heart. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Now, where does she find the strength to say this? Or to even believe this? The love of her life had just passed. Well, she knew that even in the midst of her suffering, that God is greater. So when you're in the middle of a trial, is your tendency to say, why is this suffering happening to me? Or is it to say, how can I proclaim the good news of Jesus in the middle of this trial? Maybe an illustration would, would help with this just for a moment. Maybe you've heard this before, but imagine a, a pot of bo- boiling water. Now, that represents the suffering and the struggles that we all experience in life. Well, if you put a carrot into that uh, pot of boiling water, what happens to the carrot? It gets soft. It gets soft. Uh, you put an egg into that pot of boiling water, and what happens to the egg? It gets hard. Now, you put a coffee bean into that pot of boiling water, and what happens? It releases its flavor. It flavors the water. So I think that's a wonderful illustration of how we experience suffering. So are you like the carrot? You grow soft, you, you wilt in the face of suffering, you begin to perhaps deny your faith, believe that this is not true, or you like the egg, you grow hard, you, you get angry at God, you get angry at others, uh, you... You stubbornly shake your fist at God, or you like the coffee bean that releases the fragrant aroma of Christ into the world in the midst of your suffering. So just to be specific, when you're faced with the reality of living out the truths that you hold to, that sharing your faith with your your classmates will lead to a loss of status or relationships, what are you going to do? Will you show that you know that Christ is better and willingly share about the one who is not ashamed of you? Or when you're faced with that unwanted health diagnosis that will change your life, there is grief to be sure. Grief, I'm sure, very similar to what Paul and the Ephesian elders experienced as they wished him well and sent him off to Jerusalem. But will you get angry at God? Will you abandon your faith? in the midst of that diagnosis. Or when your marriage is not what you hoped it would be, or your spouse is not who he claimed he would be, will you faithfully endure to the end? Or when your children that you so longed for and hoped would be a source of joy are are often a burden or a struggle in your life, how will you respond? Or when you find that your intellect isn't enough in high school or college, or you're not part of the in-group, How are you going to react to that suffering? Friends, there's no end to the reality of suffering in our lives. And when we suffer, even for doing right, we must use God-given wisdom and we must prioritize the gospel in seeking to hold fast to what is true and right. We must follow God's will. 
And that leads us to our last and our related, uh, perhaps related question. Our, our biggest question is, why would God's will even include suffering? Why did Paul have to suffer? Now, that's a huge theological question. Uh, one passage alone in Scripture isn't, isn't going to answer the fullness of that. But hopefully we've seen in this passage and in previous passages as we've seen Paul's life unfold, that Paul understood that his life wasn't his own. And in our culture, that's very, very different. Our culture wrongly teaches us over and over that life is about you, that it's, that it's about me. You know the, the message is, you do you, be yourself, um, make yourself happy. It's all about me. Those are the messages that we receive. But the Bible over and over tells us that it's really all about God. And that's the way it should be, since he is the creator of everything. There is nothing higher or better or more perfect than him. Nothing deserves a place of preeminence above God. So when we grapple with the question of why God's will included suffering for Paul, and we realize that God's will often includes suffering for us as well, the only thing we can do is we, we must go to the cross for comfort. So think about your own sinfulness. If you're like me, you don't even have to think back very far uh, to think about your own sinfulness. And then think about the sinlessness of Jesus. Even before the cross, Jesus experienced suffering. That was God's will, and yet at the cross, he experienced unimaginable suffering, far greater than I will ever experience or you will ever experience, as he bore the weight and guilt and penalty for all of our sin. So be comforted in knowing that even when we suffer for doing God's will, we have an advocate who knows what it's like to suffer. We have one who's willing, who is willing to obey God's will, even though it meant uh, great suffering, even when he was completely an innocent. We have a God who asks far less of us than he experienced himself. And so if we must at times suffer, we can rest assured that we have a God who provided eternal safety and security and comfort. And if, if you're not a believer in Christ, then I hope that you recognize this morning from this passage the hope and comfort and support that can be found in a Christian community. It's unlike any other. But that community is just a result of what Christ purchased in his death on the cross. And while we once were united in our sinfulness, Christ has given us a new unity centered around his sinlessness, his righteousness, that we all share. And you can have that too. And whatever suffering you're experiencing, you can be assured that God knows and he cares. So turn to him, the only one who can save your soul from eternal suffering. And if you are a believer here, let's rejoice in the godly friendships and fellowship that we have in this place. Let's be encouraged as we seek God's will, even knowing that God's will at times will mean that we suffer. Let's pray. Father, we are aware of your call in our lives as believers, that there are times that you lead us into suffering. But just like Paul, we know that 
that those are meant for our good ultimately and certainly for your glory. So God, we, we want to submit ourselves to you. We ask that you would increase our faith. We ask that you would give us the wisdom and ability to discern what your will is. And we ask for a continued community of believers, whether it's in our small groups or our gospel communities or um, the people we serve with here at church. We ask for fellow brothers and sisters that would lift us up and encourage us during that time and give us godly wisdom. God, we thank you for the example of Paul, uh, his laser focus on, on doing your will and seeking after you. And God, we know that we have that same ability too because you have given us your spirit. God, we pray for those in this room that are not believers. We pray that you would help them to see the community that we have here, uh, that that would be a fragrant aroma to them as they uh, seek to know you. Uh, We pray that, that you would use that in a way that would be a blessing to them and would encourage them to take steps toward you. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.